I'm going to invite you to now turn in your Bibles to that passage of Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 1. This morning, uh, we continue in our series of gospel-shaped community. Last week, we looked at the fact that God has made us for community and that we have a part to play in the drama of community. This week and the next two weeks, we're going to look at what a gospel-shaped community look like, looks like. But before we dive into the text, I have three scenarios for you. As I give them to you, I want you to pick one of those scenarios and then come up with two adjectives that describe the people in those scenarios. Okay? Three scenarios, pick one of them, then pick two adjectives to describe the people in that scenario that you've chosen. Okay? You ready? Here we go. 3,000 fans in the Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Auditorium who got to hear an unexpected impromptu final performance featuring eight of the Moon River Festival performers after the festival at Coolidge Park got rained out a couple of weeks ago. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two. 102,000 Tennessee football fans driving home from Neyland Stadium yesterday after watching the undefeated Vols eke out a win over the Florida Gators for only the second time in the last 18 attempts. Scenario number two. Scenario number three. 10 million American viewers watching parts of Queen Elizabeth II's funeral this past Monday a monarch who reigned for 70 years. So those are the three scenarios. Did you pick one? And do you have one or two adjectives to describe the individuals in those or that scenario? Now let me give you a fourth scenario. The individuals of the American church living every day life. What adjectives would you use to describe that scenario? It'd be fascinating for us to go around and hear your answers, both to one of the first three scenarios, but also to the last scenario. So here's the question. How should an outsider experience a community that is being shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ? How should an outsider experience the individuals of the American church living everyday life? So here's our big idea. We're just going to take two adjectives this morning and two the next week and two the week after. So here are two descriptions of a community that's being shaped by the gospel. Number one, joyful. Number two, humble. A community that's being shaped by the gospel is both joyful and humble. So let's look at these one at a time. Number one, a community shaped by the gospel is joyful. Now, Dalen read for us 1 Peter 1, 1 through 13. I want us to focus in on verses 6 through 9. Now, look down at your passage of, uh, or your copy of the scriptures. Look at how verse 6 begins. You rejoice. Then look at verse 8. You rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Okay, time for some 
honesty this morning. Do you think that when the average non-Christian thinks of Christians gathered for worship or serving their community, do you think inexpressible and glorious joy is going to make their list of adjectives to describe that scenario? Now, even though I don't have a Twitter account, on occasion, I will do a Google search for one particular Twitter account that never fails to provide some laughs. That account is the Church Curmudgeon. Anyone familiar with the Church Curmudgeon? Four of us. Some random dude started a page related to all things Christianity and church life, making terrible puns, and basically pretending to be a cranky old guy. And at times, he's absolutely hilarious. I wonder how many of us know that guy. The church curmudgeon, who's always angry at the culture, who's always sour about something, anything, who's only happy when he's unhappy, who can find the gray cloud attached to every silver lining. The church curmudgeon. But let's face it, a curmudgeonly Christian... Let's try that again. Let's face it, a curmudgeonly Christian and a curmudgeonly church are not exactly compelling, are they? Curmudgeonly Christians are a good laugh, are good for a laugh on social media, but they aren't a compelling witness to the world of the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have to be honest, I need to be the first to confess this morning that I can often tend towards being a melancholic Christian. Not curmudgeonly, per se, but a bit morose, a bit weighed down, introspective. But if I'm being honest before you and God this morning, joyful is not a valid adjective for me as often as I would like it to be. And I wonder if you can identify that with that as well. So let's take a moment and investigate why Peter calls us to joy. And let's ask God, as we do so, to use what we find to shape us into a joyful community. So look back at verse 6. He says, You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Now, I'm curious how many of you inwardly jumped to your feet with your hand raised to say, oh, me too, that verse is talking about me. Like, I right now am suffering grief in a trial. Unexplained physical ailments or diagnosed illnesses. That temptation or inner longing that seems overwhelming. Indwelling sin unfulfilled desires, or maybe the death of a dream, relational conflict, or maybe you just feel like a square peg in a round hole no matter what setting you're in. But notice what Peter's doing. In this verse, he is affirming two realities that seem contradictory. You rejoice, you suffer grief. Both are true at the exact same time. They are simultaneous experiences. 
they are roommates coexisting in the same apartment of your soul. So how the joy, how can a suffering people, a persecuted people, a people weighed down by grief in this world and the, the grief of simply being a fallen human being, how can a community like this be a joyful community? Well, look at how verse 6 starts again. He says, you rejoice in this. Well, what is the this in which they are rejoicing? We've got to look back up at verses 3 to 5. This is what Peter says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded, guarded, kept by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. The this in which Peter's readers are rejoicing and the this in which you and I have reason to rejoice, no matter what our circumstances are, comes down to one word, the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And everything that God has accomplished for us outside of our power, outside of our ability, outside of our effort, on behalf of us through Jesus. So the joy of the Christian life is wrapped up in the realities of the gospel. And how are they described in these verses? New birth, new life, living hope, an inheritance, coming salvation. Realities that are untouchable by our feelings, our experiences, our weaknesses, our failures, our sin. But how can we rest assured that at some point, because of our sin, because of our weakness and our failure, that God isn't going to drop us like a hot potato? Because God's power is keeping us through faith, the text says. So what about our trials? What about the suffering? What about that which has caused you to cry more often than you'd like to in the past six months? What about those things? What is God doing in that? Is that a sign that God has left you behind, that he's overlooked you, that he's too busy in, in other spheres of the world to care about you and your circumstances? No, on the contrary. Those trials are evidence that God is at work to do something. Look at verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, why? So that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes, perishes even though refined by fire it may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So what is Peter saying? Trials shape our faith. And the result is a faith that is inestimably valuable. 
he compares that faith to a gold, to gold, which is refined to reach a high degree of value. But in order to get there, it has to be exposed to incredible fire, incredible heat. But that gold is perishable. By contrast, our faith is also refined by the, the fire of trials, but it is not perishable. It continues. And our imperishable faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will one day cause all eyes to be cast upon Jesus, our Savior. He who alone can captivate and overwhelm a suffering soul with his grace and his beauty and his worth. Jesus who alone is worth treasuring and worth being, a pro being prized above all else and everything else. The same Jesus, by the way, the scriptures tell us, who endured the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him. So it's no wonder that we come to verse 8 and Peter gets a little emotional. Describing Jesus Christ, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The emotion of these verses is palp palpable and it taps on something deeply rooted in the heart of a believer. This community of faith those of us seated in this room, we have never laid eyes upon Jesus Christ. The eyes of our heart has grasped him by faith, but we've never seen him. So why do we love him? Why are we sitting here on a Sunday morning when we could be doing a million other things to gather together and worship and sing praises to him and pray to him and sit and open his word and listen to him? How is that possible? Because God has captivated our hearts with the beauty of Jesus, and so we love him. You know what it is to be singing a song about the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ and being moved to the point that you cannot sing anymore. Inexpressible emotion overcome with awe and joy at what he has done, securing for us what he alone could secure, the salvation of our souls. Now, you may be wondering, with all of this talk of a community being shaped by the gospel and so being joyful, is there a place in Christianity for lament? And if so, what is that place? Is there a place for grieving what is wrong and for longing for what is right? Well, the biblical worldview alone actually gives hope for the future. And that is what allows for the genuine lament of brokenness in life. Lament is not the same thing as despair. Lament acknowledges something is wrong and is not as it should be and will one day be righted. God, make that day today. Right that wrong. Despair 
has no hope. Lament is actually a longing for the promised hope to be seen in some way in the here and now. And it is that promised hope, confidence in all wrongs righted by Jesus, which produces an underlying current of joy right under the surface of trials and sorrows. And that underlying of current, current of joy gives us the freedom and the ability to lament in hope, not to wallow in sorrow, and not to despair as if there is no hope. So let me address the Christian in the room who, like me, struggles against a melancholic spirit. To those of us who find ourselves burdened by indwelling sin, by our frequent failings, by our well-known inadequacies, by our weaknesses, that all of these things are uh, amplified rather by difficult trials, to that Christian who seems unable to move from there to a place of joy. There are multiple reasons why we might struggle to get to that place of joy, but often, at the core, the reason is that we are confusing two very important realities in the Christian life. And those two realities are our justification and our sanctification. Now, before you let your eyes glaze over and check out for the next three minutes, hang on. Justification is one of those terms that we use in church, but we rarely define. Justification has both a negative and a positive angle. Now, picture yourself in a courtroom as a guilty criminal. You've committed crimes that you cannot deny. They are unarguably yours, and all the evidence is against you. That's obvious. Now, God is the judge of this courtroom. And as you stand there before him, he takes the list of crimes, a physical list, per se, that you've committed, and he takes them off your record. He then rewrites them on Jesus' record. He then takes Jesus' perfection, his perfect record, He removes it from Jesus and he places it on your record. And then, before all, he declares you to be not guilty. Why? Because you haven't committed the crimes? Because there's some question among the in the evidence? Because the prosecutor failed? No. He declares you not guilty, not because you haven't committed the crimes but because he considers them as no longer on your account because of Jesus. In justification, God forgives your sin, but he doesn't stop there. He clothes you in Jesus's righteousness and then he joyfully adopts you into into his family. So you can go from being a condemned, convicted criminal facing the wrath of God for your sin to being adopted into the family of God based on nothing you could ever do, based solely upon what Jesus has done. That's justification. Now, sanctification 
is the ongoing process, process happening right now for every believer where the righteousness of Jesus is getting worked out in your life right now. This, effort, this, this takes effort on our part, fueled by faith in Jesus. That's why we're told to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But it's dependent upon God, knowing that it is God within us who is doing the working and the willing. God is sanctifying you as you follow Jesus. And guess what? That process is painstakingly slow. There is no sanctification microwave. It takes a lifetime. It's so slow often that you may not even see the growth. So what happens when we confuse justification, something that is unalterably true, something in which we had no part except to bring our sin to the table, and sanctification, something God is at work doing right now? Well, listen to how Bob Thune and Will Walker describe this confusion. Here's the great mistake that often steals our joy. Our confidence in our justification, now remember that's what is actually true of us right now in God's eyes, our confidence in that tends to be based on our sanctification, how grace and faith-fueled effort is producing holiness within us. In other words, unless we're really doing well in holiness and obedience, we doubt whether we're truly forgiven by God. We doubt whether we are credited with Christ's righteousness. In other words, we doubt our justification. When we're struggling in the sanctification process, plagued by the same sins over and over again, my hand is raised having experienced that, and I'm guessing you could raise your hands as well plagued by the same sins over and over again when we can't seem to get our act together spiritually, what do we do? We question whether God could actually love and accept us. Sometimes we wonder if we're even Christians at all. We live in despair, defeat, and discouragement. I wonder how many of you identified with that paragraph. But they go on. When our confidence in our justification is based on our sanctification, what we're really doing is falling into self-righteousness. Say, so how is that possible? Well, it doesn't feel that way because after all, we don't feel righteous. But think about it. If our lack of sanctification, our lack of day-to-day -day righteousness causes us to doubt God's love and acceptance, then whose righteousness are we actually relying on to begin with? Our own. This is the reason we lack joy. This is the reason we're spiritually depressed. We're trusting in ourselves. And if we're trusting in ourselves, let's face it, who wouldn't be depressed? So what's the answer for a melancholic Christian existence? The answer is the same that brought us into the Christian life. It's repentance from our works-based pursuits of favor with God 
and it's turning in faith once again to the gospel of Jesus. It's not some second tier of the Christian life. It's not some new insight into some new doctrine. It's simply going deeper into the gospel in which we stand. Believing that because we are in Jesus Christ, we have no one to impress, we have nothing to hide, we have all the approval we need, and nothing more to gain. We need to return to Jesus, who alone gives joy. Jack Miller was fond of saying, cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you are more loved than you ever dared hope. John Piper describes this as fighting for joy like a justified sinner. That's a pretty good description of the Christian life, isn't it? A fight for joy, a fight to believe the depths of the gospel. So, a community shaped by the gospel is joyful. Second, a community shaped by the gospel is humble. I wonder how many of you have been watching any of the events surrounding the death of Queen Elizabeth. Something struck me over and over again as Elizabeth and I, my wife, watched the events on TV. For 70 years, 70 working years, this monarch was marked not by her displays of power, or by her arrogance in holding her position of power, but rather in public yet quiet service to her country. On her 21st birthday, when her father was still king, the young princess said over the radio addressing her, sub her father's subjects, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service. Now, Queen Elizabeth recognized that her position qualified her above all else to serve others. Now, we could lean into 1 Peter to see this played out, but I'd actually like us now to turn to Philippians chapter 2, a well-known passage. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Paul is now writing... And he says to his brothers and sisters, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he'd come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God has highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus is our example for cultivating humility. Every single individual in this room who considers sojourn to be your home church, you long for a community where self-concern is put to death 
where each member is concerned for the others. But what creates this culture of of community, this culture of service? And the answer is, of course, humility. You see, the problem is you and I tend to approach community as a consumer and not as a servant. And the authors of gospel-shaped, or rather gospel-centered community, the authors contrast the mindset of a consumer versus a servant. So, a consumer would come to this church and say, what's in it for me? A servant is going to approach and say, how can I serve others? A consumer is going to ask, who's going to relate to me and to meet my needs? A servant's going to ask, who can I relate to and whose needs can I meet? A consumer is going to be critical of the community's faults and weaknesses. A servant is going to look for God's grace at work within the community. A consumer is going to gravitate towards people who have something to offer. A servant is going to recognize the diversity of gifts within the body. A consumer is going to use others for personal gain. A servant empowers others for the good of the kingdom. So as a community being shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel, remember, which includes both Jesus' humiliation as well as his exaltation, both service and joy, the gospel frees us from consumerism and to service. And that's why Paul can say in a verse we didn't read at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider the others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. And if we approach that verse with the mindset of, yeah, I wish people would get that, I wish people would start to live into that. It's about time Sojourn represented that. Then we're missing the point. God is calling me, God is calling you into a life of service. You let the Holy Spirit deal with with His children, with the Father's children in the ways that He needs to. But in this moment right now, God is calling you to something. The gospel frees us to be humble. The gospel frees us to lean into self-forgetfulness so that we can serve one another. The gospel frees us from worrying what others think about us. And for some of us, that's a lifelong pursuit, a lifelong activity, worrying about what others think about us because God has accepted us. We're freed from anxiety because God will meet our needs. We're freed from seeking attention and public recognition Because God rewards what is done in secret. The pathway to true joy is the trail of humility. We can never be truly joyful if we are proud and self-reliant. We can't have the true joy that comes from Jesus without the humility, which also comes from Jesus, of knowing that we can't save or justify ourselves. So to gain joy, 
we clothe ourselves with humility and we embrace Christ and others. There was a custom in Old Testament Israel that you could find in Deuteronomy chapter 15. When an Israelite slave had served a fellow Israelite for six years, that slave was then released on the seventh year. But if that slave loved his or her master and considered himself or herself to be in a better situation than anything he or she could go to, then there would be an act, a public act, where that individual's ear would be pierced, declaring to the entire community that that servant had given up independence and personal rights, joyfully, willingly. So that servant would put his or her ear against the door or doorpost of his or her master and they would take an awl and they would pierce the ear. And from that point on, that servant would carry a physical reminder to the entire community that I serve a good, benevolent, gracious master and I have given my life to him. This idea of a bond slave is used throughout the New Testament to describe the Christian. We have surrendered our independence. We have given up our personal autonomy as we have bowed in humility to a benevolent and kind master. We've given up our personal rights so that we might serve him all the days of our lives. And in return, he's brought us into deep and abiding joy. So in this community, we don't take up our independence again at the expense of others. We serve one another as members of the body of Christ. So if a gospel-shaped community is both joyful and humble, what are the implications for sojourn? What does that mean for us this week? Next week, what does that mean for you as you gather with your life group next month? What does that mean for us as we gather together on Sunday or as we text throughout the week? Well, number one, first we fight for joy together, corporately in worship. Now you'll notice that weekly we do our best to craft a service that first and foremost is to form us in the gospel. That's what discipleship is. It's spiritual formation. And we desire to give us space and opportunity to vent our love and our adoration and appreciation to God. And so you, worshipers with us, are freed and invited to lean into this opportunity. Let's just be honest. Most of us are coming from very subdued church backgrounds. Right? I just proved my point. No one even responded. <laughs> There's nothing intrinsically wrong with subdued church backgrounds. And I'm not suggesting that we need to change our culture or the character of our church overnight. But I do want us to feel free when we gather 
to express our love and worship and joy because of the gospel through your worship. So for some, that may look like raising your hands in worship. For others, it may be voicing an amen during a sermon or a prayer. Or it may look like singing just a little bit louder. Or maybe expressing your agreement with the life-changing power of the gospel by clapping as we sing or after we sing. Or clapping in agreement with some truth as it's proclaimed throughout the service. Now, my goal in saying these things is not to force you to express yourself joyfully in ways that you're, un you're uncomfortable with. Nor is it to create a culture in which we begin to judge each other by external forms of worship and joy. But I do want us to feel the freedom to express and experience joy in the gatherings during our corporate worship. Second, we fight for joy individually through the week. The reality is that your brothers and sisters in this room are in some way dependent upon you, believer, to be cultivating and pursuing and fighting for joy this week. Because of the grief of individual trials, we need to be reminded by one another of the joy of the gospel. So are you creating rhythms and routines in your life liturgies, if you will, for life, where you are strengthened and brought back to the gospel. Number three, and finally, in this community, we resolve that we will joyfully and humbly make much of Jesus and little of ourselves. This church is not about me, and it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So we determine that he's going to increase and we're going to decrease. We determine that we're going to serve one another, however God has gifted us, whether or not we feel like we're loved and served in return. And we're going to refuse to sit and soak and sour, being curmudgeonly, because that's not an act of humility, but of pride. And in a life group context, we're going to refuse to simply give good advice to one another. Because let's be honest, you can just go get some how-to self-help books for that. You and I don't need, first and foremost, one another's experiences. We need the gospel. So let's, without fail, intentionally, over and over and over again, bring one another the good news of Jesus Christ. And let's pray that in all of this, God would do what only God can do and form us into a joyful and a humble community. Let's pray together. Spirit of God, I ask that you would descend upon our hearts in these moments, that you would wean us from earth, and through all its pulses move. We pray that you would stoop to our weakness, mighty as you are, and make us love you as we ought to love. And so grant us grace to fight for joy and to stoop in joyful humility before you and before one another. 
In the name of Jesus, we pray, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross so that we might be reconciled to you. In Jesus' name, amen.